Hello and welcome back to Fearless Questions, where we follow our questions to freedom. I'm your host, Jeff Blackburn, and today from the far side of the Atlantic Ocean, we are welcoming in Justin Brierly. Justin, how are you doing today? I'm very well, Jeff, and it's a delight to be with you on the show. Oh, thanks. Well, Justin works as the host of the very successful radio program called Unbelievable, which also is made available as a podcast, which uh, I might add carries quite a large global following. Uh, the show broadcasts out of the UK, while additionally, Justin works as the senior editor of Premier Christian Magazine, because apparently one full-time job wasn't enough for him. <laughs> and uh, he's also released a book this year by the same name, Unbelievable, Why After 10 Years of Talking with Atheists, I'm Still a Christian. And uh, Justin, this is a real pleasure for me today because I get to introduce someone's work that has been very meaningful for me uh, to the listeners and friends who might already not be familiar with you. And so as we, we've said you sort of work at a Christian radio station there in the UK out of London, but I wonder if just at the outset here, you might let listeners know a little bit about your radio program, sort of the unique mm. format you utilize, and, and also perhaps share a bit of the backstory to the beginnings of the show. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as you say, I do work um, for a Christian radio station, Premier Christian Radio, though not nearly as many of those over here in the UK as you have in the USA. And um, in a way, Premier Christian Radio was the very first Christian radio station in the UK. Um, And in that sense, uh, it's always had quite a a broad mandate in terms of trying to reach the whole of the church in the UK and and resource Christians. And uh, well, I began the Unbelievable show on air about 12 years ago. Um, And time has flown, but it was in fact 12 years ago. And Mm. really, at that point, I went to the uh, CEO of Premier to say, look, we're great at doing programming that equips Christians to talk to each other and, and resources them and so on. But we don't do a lot of actually talking to non-Christians. And that's actually where a lot of people find themselves in their day to day life with non-believing relatives or friends or colleagues or whatever it might be. Sure. Uh, could could we do something that sort of equips them uh, in a sense? And so that was where the unbelievable um, with a question mark sort of uh, program idea was was born. And, and it was simply a, a weekly show that was initially live every Saturday where we would um, bring a Christian and a non-Christian together for having a dialogue or a debate. And we'd, we'd ask some question around the Christian faith. You know, is it believable? Uh, did Jesus rise from the dead? What about suffering? Um, can we trust the Bible? Uh, science and faith, all of those issues we started to unpack on this program, uh, which, uh, which, yeah, was really interesting because it was, it was a bit of a, um, you know, it was a bit of a risky thing to do because inevitably when you're talking to a primarily Christian audience, they're not necessarily going to be too, um, into having, atheists and skeptics and objections on their Christian radio station. So it was a bit of a learning curve, both for me, for the audience and for the guests who came on in terms of making that happen. But I think in the end, um, a lot of the people who wanted to have that material on the radio station said, we love this. We want to get outside the bubble a bit. For those who weren't so into it, they just kind of learned to <laughs> skip that slot on a Saturday <laughs> And um, and and that was where how the show was born, really, um, with with just yeah, trying to trying to make a space really for having these kinds of open ended dialogues. And your show's not a critique. You don't actually you moderate the show, right? You're not you bring in other voices and try and give them a chance to present the best version of their argument. Isn't that right? Absolutely. So I've tried to, as far as possible, be a neutral moderator in a sense for the various debates and discussions that have happened on the show over the years. I don't hide the fact I am a Christian myself, obviously, and this is obviously broadcasting on a Christian radio station. 
but especially i think um even more so i think as as the show's taken off as a podcast and now downloaded by lots of non-christians atheists skeptics and so on i've really felt i i need to try and and give that kind of neutral space where both sides feel like they're being given a really fair chance and and hopefully not um you know bring on a really brilliant christian and a really terrible atheist you yeah. know so yeah. they wipe the floor with the other where i genuinely try and hear the you know the best of each side when it comes to whatever subject we we happen to be debating mm-hmm. and and so that's an important responsibility and one i one i have tried to take seriously over the years mm. yeah no and over the over the past 11 or 12 years you've had some of the biggest names thought leaders scientists and theological scholars from from a really broad spectrum and i and I wonder if you've managed how you've managed to moderate these discussions and debates with what are sometimes emotionally charged subjects and with people of such differing views and uh, like, how have you kept things peaceful and useful for listeners? Um, you know, cause maybe there's particular mixes of perspectives that seem to always spark more intensity than others, like a um, Muslim and a Christian, a scientist and a theologian, or, or maybe just like Bart Ehrman and whoever else he might be talking to. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just kidding. It's a good guy. That's part of the the challenge, really, and and the skill, I suppose, is is when you're sitting down, either looking at a topic and saying who should I bring on, or you've got someone in, you know, there's a you've got a particular person who's coming on, and and say right, who's the best person to put opposite them, because that will determine the kind of conversation you have in the studio, and whether it's going to be a very polite or academic conversation, or whether it's going to be quite a, you know, full on conflict driven kind of conversation and and so much depends on the person you choose to to bring into the studio so there are times when you know I do say right I'm going to go for more of a conflict driven um, discussion this time because I'm going to go bring this person on with that person and I know the sparks are going to fly and other times where I say no we really need for this subject we need two people who just know their stuff and it's going to be quite academic and polite and, and everything else um and and I think it's just a case of trying to get the balance right because at the end of the day I'm trying to to create a show which is thought-provoking interesting people want to listen to so you have to have a little bit of grit and <laughs> and comfort, uh, in that a bit of drama um but at the same time you want there to be more light than heat generated in the long run you <laughs> yeah. want people to learn you want people you know uh, to have a good experience in the process and, and hopefully come away you know knowing more about these subjects than they did when they started and so from that point of view, uh, you know, very often you'll you'll find people who so take the science and faith thing. I've just done a show which went out this weekend um, where uh, Sean Carroll, who's a well-known uh, science popularizer in the USA, a cosmologist, had a debate on whether God or naturalism is the best explanation of the universe with an Australian astrophysicist called Luke Barnes. Really high level, interesting philosophical discussion, um, very polite but loads of really substantive stuff in there. Really enjoyed hosting that that debate. Um, go back a few years, and I did a not dissimilar topic where I I had John Lennox on. Um, uh, so so he's well known here in the UK as a um, Christian uh, mathematician and philosopher. Um, and I had I managed to get him on with Lawrence Krauss, who's also well known in the US as a science popularizer, but much more I'd say um, vehement atheist in terms of the way he puts things across than maybe Sean Carroll is and and that was a very different kind of conversation because because it there was a lot more at least uh, to some extent really on on Lawrence Krauss's part um kind of a sarcasm and uh sort of an unwillingness to even consider the Christian point of view and 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 it was much 
about kind of you know uh doing doing the whole uh yeah rhetorical thing if you know what i mean and, yeah. and so now at one level you know it's great to have a show like that occasionally because because it's a different kind of show <laughs> that the drama there's some conflict it's certainly memorable um uh, but you wouldn't want all of them to be like that because you wouldn't really actually end up learning anything in the process whereas you listen to that that sean carroll and and uh luke barnes one and, and you'll come away feeling like i i really learned something in the process of hearing those two you know debate that one hmm. well um and there are so there is such an interesting variety of topics that you cover um and you guys take on a number of questions and i did want to sneak in one question just sort of talking as an american i i was wondering if you've noticed any significant difference in the types of faith questions uh being asked by people in america from the types of questions normally being asked by folks in the UK and other parts of the world. Yeah, I I, I think the different cultural <clears throat> background that people are coming from, especially from the Christian perspective, does does massively make a difference. So here in the UK, I'd say there's less of a what you might call young earth creationist movement, whereas that's still a big deal in in the USA. There's still you know a lot of Christians for whom that would be the paradigm that they've grown up with in their church and so on. And um, so, uh, you know, issues that might don't tend to, to get a lot of air airplay here in the U the UK church are still really big concerns in the, in the U S church. And so it tends to be when we do those kinds of subjects. Um, so maybe a young earth creationist versus a, an evolutionist or something like that. It, it tends to be located more in the conversation that's happening in the U S as to, where Christians are on the spectrum and so on, it just doesn't tend to be an issue that's really being debated much in the in the UK church for whatever reason. Um, I think there's more of a um, an acceptance generally among evangelicals in the in the UK maybe that it's okay to, you know, for there to be a spectrum of belief in this area. Whereas I think the US still has the luxury almost of of its church networks kind of being quite precise about where people need to land on those kinds of if they're going to be part of their particular group, if you like. Whereas um, to some extent, the UK church has had to kind of see that, you know, if we're going to make any, you know, impact in the UK in terms of mission and everything, we've got to work together um, despite differences and and see that a lot of what unites us is much bigger than what, what divides us on mm. in terms of those kinds of issues. So, mm. so that's one, one way in which I'd see. I think very, very often I meet with the the ex-Christians who I meet through the show from America, they tend to have um, lost their faith, having grown up in maybe a very um, specific church environment where one particular way of seeing scripture and creation and ethical issues was was kind of downloaded onto them. And then it all fell apart maybe when they went to college or, you know, they ran into the Internet, basically, and everything got thrown up in the air. Um, and that, again, is is something that I tend to find a lot more in the US than the UK, where I think that you just can't really exist so much in a Christian bubble culture as maybe you can in certain parts of the USA, mm. because it's just a much more generally secular culture. Um, you, you know, if you go to church as a Christian, that's unusual in, in the UK, uh, whereas it might be quite normal in a lot of parts of the USA. And um, we certainly don't have the kind of mega church structures where they could like literally provide all of your entertainment, education and, and everything else right, kind of right. in one package. We we just don't have that in the UK. So you're going to be engaging with and learning from and having, you know, 
um, you, you're much more in the kind of general pluralistic social milieu. Mm. And so to some extent, um, your Christian faith, if you're a Christian in the UK, gets fashioned in that in that way so that you're going to inevitably um, have run into some of these these issues. And, and, and maybe it's it's not quite such a crunch moment if if something gets significantly challenged as as sometimes happens in, in some of the guests I've met from the from the USA. Mm. Um, so yeah, sorry, long-winded no, answer. No, there. no, that's okay. I, I I hear you saying that uh, you guys are not building arcs as we are over here. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, I, of course, it does happen to some extent in, in certain expressions of the of the UK church. But yeah. generally speaking, I'd say we 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 all there's a bigger picture in the UK, which is, uh, you know, we, we want the church to have an impact on society, and we've we've got we've realised we we can't do that. By you know, yeah, sure. Build, yeah, building it up. <laughs> well, uh, well, Justin, look, let's. Uh, you know, we mentioned earlier that you wrote a book this year um, that was released this year called "Unbelievable," that sort of chronicles your thought processes of the big issues uh, that you're constantly moderating discussions about. Um, but as a listener of your program, it's rare that we get to hear you share your personal beliefs, and this book really jumps in there. And I wonder what you would say is sort of the impetus behind bringing this book to the public. Yeah, it was really something that I think had been in the back of my mind for a long time, having had all these opportunities to speak to so many Christians and non-Christians uh, really at the top of their game um, in relation to theology and apologetics and science and faith and the Bible and everything else. Um, I thought I, I'd, I'd already, you know, at, by the time I wrote the book, I'd been editing Premier Christianity magazine for three years. I felt I, I now have the skills in place, if you like, to, to maybe tell my story of the show, mm. of all the conversations that have been had. And maybe that will be helpful both to Christians and non-Christians, um, for hopefully for Christians to help them to maybe understand how they can, in, uh, if you like, tell their story to others in a way that hopefully makes more sense. Um, and also for non-Christians to help them to consider the claims of Christianity, but also just to open that door to uh, a meaningful conversation, which has so often been shut down very often in popular culture in, in one way or another. So I've tried to be as, as I hope, gracious to both sides as possible, both and, and in a sense, as the, the subtitle says, why after 10 years of talking with atheists, I'm still a Christian. I have sort of restricted it to some extent to that conversation between atheism and Christianity, because that's where so much of the show has centered itself um, in terms of the, the new atheism and, and all of that stuff over the last 10 years or so. So that was really, yeah, what it was. I wanted to tell the story of the show, kind of explain where I'm at, um, having had all those conversations, why, although certainly my faith has been challenged on numerous levels in having these conversations, I actually feel that my faith is deeper and more confident, even though it's taken some knocks along the way. So, so that was the, the, the oh great now, it's, it's very it's a very helpful read um and it's interesting especially for folks that like you've had such a unique journey to be able to be exposed to the to the folks you have um you know along these lines um depending on what faith tradition somebody comes from um the idea of evangelism uh carries sort of varying degrees of meaning and importance um, some folks in the business world might even just hear the word and think of the latest grassroots marketing scheme. But uh, but you've seemed a bit more committed to this idea of evangelism where you actually you've even organized an annual evangelism conference. Right. And feel free to plug that if you want to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we call it an, an evangelism and apologetics conference. So it's unbelievable. The conference. We're not very 
uh, we're not very original with our names for things. It's, it's <laughs> unbelievable the conference, unbelievable the show. Um, but uh, it's yeah, I, I I believe in evangelism. Uh, I think it can be done really badly, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I hope that what we're trying to encourage in in people who come to the conference or read the book or, or listen to the podcast is um, evangelism is is about really engaging with people where they are. Um, not necessarily expecting them to simply sign up to a set of beliefs. Um, and uh, that that is very often a very long process as well. And one in which hopefully um, we we see ourselves as being open to learning along the way. I think that's mm. often with evangelism. It's, is it seen as a very, uh, I deliver you a load of information that you accept. And if you accept it, then the, the, it's been successful um, yeah. engagement. I think we have to relearn at some, to some extent that um, evangelism has to be about a genuine relationship. And, and if you're not prepared to actually potentially be yourself changed in the process of having that kind of a conversation, then uh, is it really a, a genuine conversation and, and relationship? And that's where I tend to find, you know, the average unbelievable show. I don't think many people get converted, as it were, on the basis of an argument. Mm-hmm. Now, it be some arguments and hearing some of those issues debated are significant sort of milestones along some people's journey to faith. But, um, most often when I do hear of, of anyone who has come to faith in with unbelievable as part of the stories, it's always been because there's also been a conversation going on between them and, and other people, um, that, that has obviously had a, a, a big impact on them as well. So, so I think, um, you know, hopefully evangelism when it's done well is about, having those kinds of conversations and uh and inviting people into something that you you have experienced for yourself Hmm. when you actually actually already answered my next question because i was interested about this whole like what where do you see more movement in in sort of those arguments or outside through more traditional um things we've seen done um you know justin uh in your book you spent uh some time covering some of the biggest issues that you've wrestled with over the years and like i said people are going to want to pick a pick up a copy of that uh, to read that for themselves. But one of the issues you sort of jumped into is this issue of um, human value and sort of along that with the idea of general morality. And, you know, at the outset of that particular chapter in the book, you shared a really powerful story about this man, uh, Papa Jamie, who in the seventies was walking the streets of Columbia and encountered some troubling situations. And I know you don't have the book memorized, but I wonder if you might be able to recall that sort of an overview well, of that story. I've got the book in front of me. So oh, there you I, go. I could- I'll yeah, read along I'll read, then. <laughs> I'll, read, I'll read my opening to that chapter. And this was a story that actually that I was told by a guest on Unbelievable several years ago. Um, and I do credit him in the in the footnotes as well. Um, Mark Rock. But uh, it's uh, I was able to go go ahead and go away and, and research the story for myself to, to kind of convey it for the chapter. But yeah, it, amazing story. So in the 1970s, James Jeremillo, a wealthy businessman, was walking along the streets of Bogota in Colombia when he saw a young girl climbing down through a manhole into the sewers below. Jeremillo went home, put on a wetsuit and followed the girl into the manhole. And to his amazement, he discovered about 90 children living underground in the filthy rat-infested sewers. Uh, These were the youngest victims of Colombia's so-called dirty war, in which government forces and paramilitary groups fought running battles across the country. And in the social maelstrom, street kids found themselves at the bottom of the pile, often addicted to sniffing glue, involved in prostitution and suffering from disease and malnutrition. The reason for their subterranean living space was that paramilitary gangs were killing the children who lived on the streets above. 
Regarded as vermin, a gang member said of them, killing these kids is like killing lice. We call them the disposables. And when a nine-year-old girl, Patricia Hilario da Silva, was gunned down in Brazil, a note was found pinned to her, which read, I killed you because you didn't study and had no future. She was murdered because in the eyes of her assassin, she had no value, no usefulness to society. So appalled at this situation in his home country, Jaramillo, or Papa James, as he's affectionately known, uh, went on to rescue as many kids from the sewers as possible and used his money to build a home where they receive an education and live in a loving Christian community. And today he's changed the lives of thousands of children. And really the... The point I then went on to make in the chapter on the back of that story is is you'll be both appalled and really inspired by that story because it's appalling the idea that humans could treat each other, especially, you know, the most vulnerable children in that way as disposables. Um, and at the same time, um, uh, you know, inspired by what Papa Jamie did, uh, which is incredible and, and should be, you know, most people would say absolutely the right thing to do. Uh, the humane thing to do. Um, but that kind of leads me off into a whole question then of, well, why do we have this sense that there really is ultimate value to every life, even a street kid in Bogota in Colombia? Um, why is that sense correct, that, that these kids have ultimate value, regardless of their place on the sort of social uh, ladder, and not the view of the, the killer, you know, that well, your life had no future, therefore, you know, you were disposable. Mm. And for me, and this is obviously something I try to work through in the whole of the chapter and, and certainly have had many debates on Unbelievable about this. For me, I find it very difficult to ground this this instinctive view most so many people have of the, 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 the ultimate value that resides in humanity um, on an atheistic worldview, a worldview where actually all that ultimately exists, if you like, on a, on a naturalistic level is matter in motion, uh, the blind forces of evolution, which maybe produce some kind of social strata and so on, but none of which sort of fundamentally grounds humans as particularly special over and above any other form of life on that tree of life. Whereas theism, which is obviously <clears throat> the point of view I'm, I'm sort of advocating for and defending, does have a ready explanation for this view we have of human value, which is that we are made in the image of God. And that gives us a value which no other type of um, ranking in life can 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 overcome. So whether you're well educated or not, born in a rich or poor country, uh, whatever gender or sexuality or whatever you're born into, um, actually, you can't be uh, the, your value cannot be in that particular thing. It's actually in something that transcends all those categories. It's 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 our that our value is is in the image of God. And obviously, of course, Christianity has a whole story about just how valuable we are expressed in the the life and death of Jesus Christ, uh, God himself coming to to redeem the, the humanity he created. So for me, um, it was just a way of getting into that whole question, uh, which has been actually the starting point for many Christians on their, their journey from atheism to faith of um, how do we ground our belief in value, um, objective right and wrong? Um, and uh, can we do it on atheism? I think it's very hard to do on atheism. I think it's very natural to do within the Christian worldview. Hmm. That's helpful. And, and I imagine you might allude to those same, that same reasoning, um, because I know when it comes to, you know, when we talk morality, it seems to grow up out of that. And, um, you know, so, cause many of atheists, um, would object to this idea that there has to be, um, a God to have to behave morally. 
And honestly, it seems like many church going folks who say they do believe this, but I, I thought it was interesting in your book that you don't necessarily think that's true. And, and like you were just describing, um, you know, I guess what I would say is in a regular conversation with an atheist who says, I don't have to have God to behave morally, um, just for listeners that have never really encountered that, um, but might sometime in the future, what would, what would you say to them that is your... I'd, I'd say I absolutely agree. No, you don't have to believe in God to believe morally. I, I know many really moral atheists, you know, excellent paragons of, of virtue and, and, you know, people who are, support all kinds of good causes um, who don't believe in God. So, no, it's obviously not believing in God that, that makes us moral, that makes us act morally. And that, that's the problem. People very often confuse this argument that's called a moral argument and think well, that what apologists or Christians or theologians are saying is, if you don't believe in God, you won't behave morally. That's not the argument. It's um, we, we accept that atheists may act much better very often than, than their Christian counterparts. But what we are saying is if you believe that you should act in certain ways, that there's something about our existence and our value and the way life is, that means that you should should be acting in certain ways towards other people or, or, you know, you should be pursuing justice and love and compassion and mercy rather than greed and avarice and hate. Um, the, the question is, can you account for that on the worldview you're standing in? Um, so and, and the, the conclusion I've come to is that it's very difficult to do that on an atheistic worldview because you have to ask yourself, what is it about the unit? There's no, no aboutness about life if you if there is no transcendent aspect to it. There just is what is, you know. Yeah. Evolution maybe delivers us a set of um, useful ways of interacting with each other that help us to pass on our DNA. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't say we should do that. That's that's an that's something you've added if you think that you should treat people this way because you've you've assumed there's something about life that matters. And actually science alone won't give you that all it will tell you is what is it won't tell you what we ought to be doing so when we start using words like ought or better or should we have to ask ourselves where's that coming from and i very find it very difficult to see how you can you can do that um on a, on a world without god where where all that is is what is um whereas i think it's, it's very consistent with a world where the where there is a God. So, mm. so I, I would not even try to say to anyone who says, Oh, I, I can be good without God. No, you can't be. I, I think people can be good without God. Mm. Um, but the question is, where did they get that idea of good in the first place? It, can they account for it on their worldview? Yeah. Well, on a, on a street level, many people may not try to, they might not bother trying to, to figure it out. Um, but I know like later in your book, you described a in this sort of like naturally, the argument sort of naturally moves along here where what is the purpose of humanity to begin with? Um, Cause you described a big moment for you when you kind of came to see that self defeating nature of a naturalistic worldview. Um, and uh, I want you, you used a couple of examples that I thought might be really helpful for people. One was about a game of billiards being played with no rules. Um, and oh, yeah. you also shared one about CS Lewis and his argument from desire. And I wonder if you might be able to share any of those. Sure. Well, this was in the, the chapter where where I kind of make the case that I think God makes sense of human purpose, um, whereas a naturalism, atheism doesn't really make sense of our, our inherent belief in, in purpose and so on. And one of the things I direct I sort of mention is that um, one of the big influences on my life has been C.S. Lewis, um, his writings as a, as a Christian, as an apologist. Um, and, and really, um, one of the things that really got me when I was a young man was reading his book Miracles, in which he made 
the case that um, there's it's very difficult to see how we can even believe in a process like reason and logic if all that actually exists are is essentially matter in motion molecules you know firing off in the brain and, and causing chemical reactions and that sort of thing um, and so um, this is I'll just again I'll read from the book if you don't mind me doing no, so but uh, he explained how if we're nothing more than the collision of atoms and electrons albeit fantastically complicated and all our thoughts and feelings can also be reduced to such physical events then we run into a huge problem there's nothing true or false about the collision of atoms in the brain they are what they are physical events like the balls that collide with one another on a billiard table we've no personal control over these processes so why should we believe that the thoughts produced by these physical events can be trusted most atheists i know pride themselves on the use of reason and evidence in their arguments against god but on a purely naturalistic worldview all that's really happening at a fundamental level is a variety of atoms bumping into other atoms triggering electrochemical responses in the brain what's more because the universe runs on the strict principle of cause and effect, all those collisions were predetermined in the distant past. You and your beliefs are the product of a long chain of inevitable physical events. So when you come to the conclusion that there is no God, that's just the way your brain happens to end up fizzing. And when I claim there is a God, that's just the way my brain fizzes. But the atoms aren't doing any reasoning. It's all just a series of physical events, billiard balls bouncing off one another. So that's kind of where I go with that. And, and that's um, been developed by people since Lewis. So mm. kind of a modern version, if you like, of this is, is there's a philosopher called Alvin Plantinga, whose evolutionary argument against naturalism takes a similar idea and says, if, say, we are just the result of a undirected process of evolution with no god involved no 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 meaning behind it and so on you've got no reason to trust your mental faculties that you've even rightly thought about this process of evolution because they weren't aimed at producing true beliefs they were aimed at survival um, and so it kind of radically undercuts itself when you take this very reductive naturalistic approach because we end up not being able to trust that actually any actual trustworthy reasoning is going on if all that's happening is matter in motion or some undirected process aimed at um, survival of the the species and so on. Mm -hmm. So that's um, that, that's kind of where I, I go with that. And I hopefully it, these are big philosophical questions, but yeah. hopefully sort of uh, put across in a, in a somewhat uh, accessible way. Yeah. And they, and they are big questions. And that's one of the things that one of the reasons I recommend the book is that it does introduce these conversations in a really helpful, accessible way. I think your show does that as well. Um, it does occasionally get, they get intense. I mean, not intense, but um, they do become big conversations that are very intellectually challenging sometimes. Like when you're having your brain melted with a multiverse um, discussion or something. Um, <laughs> But, and you know, one of the, we were just talking about this, like blind atoms colliding, this and that. There's folks like uh, Richard Dawkins that have, you know, written books like The God Delusion. Um, and maybe this is a good chance for us to talk about that. I know it's, I don't know if you like talking about it, but not many people can say that they've had the opportunity to sort of corner Richard Dawkins in a conversation. But, but you write about your experience of interviewing him right after his debate with John Lennox, who you mentioned um, back in 2008. Um, which that debate is online available for people who want to see it. Um, it's interesting. Um, but I mean, for my younger listeners, even this is literally the guy who coined the term meme. So, and mm. others will remember his, his other writings, but I wonder if you just share briefly how that came to be and what that experience was like kind of uh, sharing a conversation with him. Well, yeah, it, this was a, a, I guess a few years into the show. Um, and 
soon after I began the program, Richard Dawkins' name came up all the time because he had just written The God Delusion, which, you know, quickly became a bestseller. It was really at the almost at the zenith, really, of the the new atheism in terms of the literature and so on. And so um, what I really wanted to do, of course, was to get Richard Dawkins on my program as a guest, you know, have one of those, you know, conversations, one of those debates where which I would moderate uh, for various reasons. It just wasn't able to happen. Um, but what did um, what did happen was that he was due to have this kind of public debate in Oxford with John Lennox. Um, and so I um, was able to attend that that debate, um, was able to go to the kind of the press conference afterwards and ask one or two questions of both of them. But what really um, was was a fantastic opportunity that emerged straight after uh, was uh, as I was leaving the uh, Natural History Museum in Oxford, where it took place, um, I, I was due to go to a sort of after debate party that had been scheduled at a nearby college. And I was hoping I might be able to you know, get an interview with Richard Dawkins while there. Uh, and as it turned out, as I left the <laughs> The, the museum who who should actually be pushing his bicycle right next to me but richard dawkins himself nice. we just happened to obviously have <laughs> left the the venue at the same time and and so um i kind of took my opportunity to at that point introduce myself say hello i'm justin i captured I, audience I, I run a faith debate show would love to talk to you once we get to the venue if that's possible and we had a bit of chit chat on our way um and uh, and if you've ever been to oxford you'll know that that's one of the primary methods of transport the, the bicycle so um and and it's not unusual to see richard dawkins riding his bike um, up and down the one of the high streets in oxford but um so so that set me up for for then approaching him once we got into the the the, the, the you know the environment of the hobnobbing and the, the canopies and champagne being passed around and uh and my heart was in my mouth, genuinely. I was really nervous because I felt like this was a big opportunity. I sort of um, was approaching this. If I can't get him to debate someone on my show, I'm going to have to debate him myself. And so that's kind of the, <laughs> Good luck. Like, the way I went into it, really, knowing I'd only get a few minutes with him. Uh, so I kind of um, rocked up sort of as soon as he'd finished talking to someone, stepped in, said, Richard, hello, would love to have that interview with you now, if possible. So he said, yes, yes, go ahead. And um, and so I just started to kind of quiz him on various aspects of the debate it had with John Lennox, um, meaning, purpose, all of those kinds of areas, science and faith. But maybe one of the most interesting aspects and one that actually got what quite widely circulated afterwards was a, a bit of our conversation where we we kind of touched on the whole issue of um, whether we can have sort of a belief in right and wrong or, or ultimate morality uh, on a kind of naturalistic uh, worldview and so um, again I can I can read out a little bit of that the conversation that took place then if, if that sure, works if you'd like sure yeah uh, um, so um, so uh, I, I kind of uh, quote it verbatim in the book um, here's how our interaction went when we got to talking about whether our morality is derived only from uh, godless undirected evolution alone uh, I said but if we'd evolved into a society where rape was considered fine would that mean that rape is fine and he replied, I don't want to answer that question. It's enough for me to say that we live in a society where it's not considered fine. We live in a society where selfishness, failure to pay your debts, failure to reciprocate favours is regarded askance. That is the society in which we live. I'm very glad. That's a value judgment. Glad that I live in such a society. And I sort of countered by saying, but when you make a value judgment, don't you yourself immediately step outside of this evolutionary process and say that the reason this is good is that it's good. And you don't have any way to stand on that statement. And he replied, well, my value judgment itself could come from my evolutionary past. And I said, well, therefore, it's just as random in a sense as any product of evolution. 
And he said, you could say that. In any case, nothing about it makes it more probable that there is anything supernatural. And I responded, okay, but ultimately your belief that rape is wrong is as arbitrary as the fact that we've evolved five fingers rather than six. And he ended that part of our interview by saying, you could say that, yeah. <laughs> Which I just found, you know, yeah. a very honest thing to say because I think he was owning up at that point to the limitations of, of his, his atheism. It can't deliver you a kind of objective morality. It can't yeah. deliver you, you know, that, that rape really is wrong. Um, it's just a sort of what ha evolution happens to have delivered us in this time and place and culture. Yeah. We have a right to say it's wrong if it's happening somewhere else in a different culture that's evolved into in a different way. That's the big question for me. Um, and, and I think and I think that helped to to some extent that helped to draw out what is, I think, a, a significant issue for for the average naturalist. Yeah. And it, that was sort of a uh, did you order the code red? It was interesting to listeners who were like, well, wow, he's really pressing him. And uh, just, you know, kudos to you that I was impressed with the courage it must have taken to press him on some of those issues in those circumstances. Um, he's not always been known as a really gentle character. So that was that was uh, that was a really, really interesting. It does depend on the kind of mood you catch him in, in my yeah, experience. Because okay. <laughs> it has come on the show since then. Um, we we did a debate on the Old Testament and God and that sort of thing once. And he was actually very, very nice, um, you know. And uh, I've had some private correspondence with him on other matters where, where he's sometimes, you know, not been terribly... Uh, uh, you know, uh, genteel, but it's, um, it, it depends. And, uh, personally, I thank God for Richard Dawkins in the sense that, you know, he has provided me with more show material than I, than I could have dreamt. <laughs> you know? Well, and he does ask good questions. I mean, he presses in on it's, it's helpful to hear other perspectives and, and other viewpoints, um, that people aren't always considering. So absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think he, he's at least, he's a person who genuinely, you know, tries to argue for his convictions. I think that's important. You, you know where you stand with Richard Dawkins. And, um, and uh, yeah, I, I hope I hope he's around for many years to come. And, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. Well, Justin, look, here, here for his question, something I always ask, like to ask my guests before we wrap up is just what questions do you wish that more people were asking? Is there a point to life? And if there is, am I living it? I think because um, reality is whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian or an atheist or whatever, um, I, I just think so many people go through life without ever actually asking themselves whether they're doing the thing that life is about somehow. Um, and I think a lot of people settle for second best. And uh, there are many Christians out there who think they've got um, life worked out, but actually uh, I don't think they're anywhere near the kind of life that Jesus envisioned for us. In terms of um, when he said, you know, I've come to give you life in all its fullness, that's been perverted in some parts of the Christian church into the health and wealth prosperity gospel. But actually, um, when I see people who are making the biggest difference in the world, uh, for Christ's sake, um, it makes me think, gosh, am I investing my life in the way that I'm supposed to be? And if you're not a Christian, I think it's you need to ask yourself that question as well. Does does my worldview, in you know, does it allow for a purpose to life? Um, and cause I think you need to ask yourself that before you, before you finish this life, you should have asked yourself that question. Is there a point to this? And if there is, am I pursuing it? Um, and I think if we can honestly do that, whether we're Christian or non-Christian, then, then we will have done something that's worth doing. Mm. 
Thank you. That's, that's helpful. You know, one of the issues that all of us run the risk of in our faith and our worldview is the, the potential to get caught up in an echo chamber. And um, I think your radio program and I guess I should say the podcast for us here in the States, it's just an excellent resource. Um, I like to think of it as an inoculation, if you will, against that sort of echo chamber effect. Um, and along with that, I really do encourage people to go pick up a copy of your book. Um, you know, we'll attach links to that in the show notes. But this book really seems to be a window into your faith, which I think is fascinating. And it's been uniquely exposed to such a broad spectrum of challenges. It, it carries with it a lot of weight. And so kindly, uh, you've written it very conversational in every language, so it's easy to interact with. So, so thanks very much for that, Justin. Jeff, thank you. It's been a delight. And if um, people are interested, uh, there are even signed copies available from our own website. That's unbelievablebook.co.uk. Oh, great, great. Well, thanks for joining me on the program today, Justin. It's been a pleasure to have you on and, and hopefully we can reconnect again in the future. Brilliant. Thanks, Jeff. All right. Cheers.